Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. The Congressional Budget Office projects that the U.S. will add more than $20 trillion to the debt in the next decade while spending more on interest payments than national defense. Plus, the House impeaches Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas as Democrat Tom Suozzi runs away with a New York special election to replace George Santos. Welcome. I'm Kyle Peterson with The Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleagues, columnists Alicia Finley and Kim Strassel. The budget brains at the CBO are often the bearers of bad news lately. And let's start with some testimony by CBO Director Philip Swaggle, who's on Capitol Hill today, uh, giving some of his short-term projection, including a slowdown in economic growth. The U.S. economy grew faster in 2023 than it did in 2022, even as inflation slowed. We do see economic growth slowing in 2024 with slightly higher unemployment and continued lower inflation. We expect the Fed, the Federal Reserve, to eventually respond by reducing interest rates starting around the middle of the calendar year. What's even more worrying to me, though, Alicia, are these long-term projections from the CBO. An agency recently issued a report that's titled The Budget and Economic Outlook 2024 to 2034. And Alicia, what are your big takeaways from this document the CBO is warning about? Well, I think, first of all, that the fiscal situation is only going to get worse. Uh, the last year recorded a $2 trillion deficit. And actually what CBO projects is that the debt over the next 10 years will grow to about $48.3 trillion in 2034 from 262 in this last fiscal year. Now, if you think about it, that's about a $22 trillion increase in just over the last 10 years, which is about as much uh, debt the U.S. passed piled on in its entire history through the year 2021. And by the way, that included the first year of the pandemic when it was piled on a lot of debt. So the the debt in in deficits are going to keep growing and keep growing much faster. That's one big takeaway. A second is that it it isn't a revenue problem. It's a spending problem. Revenues are expected to actually average 17.8% of GDP through 2034 compared to the 17.3% average over the last 50 years. It's rarely, I mean, the highest it's ever really gotten is just a little over 18%. But the spending is expected to average 23.5% GDP, which is a lot more than the 50-year average of 21%. And that's largely because of entitlement spending, mainly Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security. And as the baby boomers age and retire, Medicare and Social Security spending is going to increase. And not only that, Medicaid spending has been increasing at a much faster rate. And some of that is because of the national emergency, which added many more individuals to the Medicaid rolls. And the states have been somewhat slow to remove them even after the emergency ended. But uh turns out is that the beneficiaries of these programs are also using a lot more health care than expected. And they're also CBO projects that more seniors are living longer. So spending is also going to increase. So, so that's a big takeaway. Third, uh, CBO, its baseline projections 
assume, by the way, that the 2017 tax cuts expire and that a lot of programs or the IRA, for instance, IRA's bomb care subsidies also expire in 2025. And and that's that's very unlikely. So you're probably going to see trillions of dollars in more spending and probably somewhat lower revenues, assuming that the, some of the tax cuts, I mean, I, I would assume at least the middle class tax cuts in the 2017 reform get extended for probably another 10 years or so. And and I think the the third big takeaway is that this is unsustainable because right now with the interest rates, and you recall the debt basically and deficits, they compound in the interest, therefore it necessarily increases. And by the year 2034, interest payments are expected to grow to about $1.6 trillion. Just put that in perspective, that's about almost twice as much as we are now currently spending on national defense. And so really, the, that could essentially buy hundreds of new warships, but instead we're going to be spending on servicing the national debt. And again, this just isn't sustainable from a fiscal standpoint. And, and, and invariably, the Congress is going to have to step in, if only to prevent the Medicare and Social Security trust funds from going broke and pass some kind of reforms. And that will probably include a big tax hike and maybe very modest adjustments to benefits. Kim, to me, this report busts some myths. And the first of them that Alicia already mentioned is that this is not a spending problem because it clearly is a spending problem. And I get if people don't want to go read through a long, dry, boring CBO report, but you can pull this up and just look at some of the charts that the CBO presents here. And one of them is average revenues and average outlays. It goes back to 1974. And the average revenues from that 1974 to 2023 was 17.3% of GDP. And then the projection for the year 2024 is 17.5% of GDP. So uh, a little bit above trend there. And if you look at outlays, on the other hand, the average from 1974 to 2023 is 21% of GDP. And now we're on a trend line where by 2034, the CBO is projecting it will be 24% of GDP. And so you have this situation in this chart where revenues are basically on trend with where they have been for decades. And the line for outlays is continuing to go up. I'd add also on this revenue point that these averages hold under a whole different variety of tax regimes that we've had. If you go back and look at the personal income tax, the rate on it in the late 70s and even into 1980, the top income tax rate in the United States was 70%. But despite that, the U.S. tax code was full of uh, loopholes and carve-outs. And so there was not a hugely larger amount of revenue being raised. We are still basically on trend with where we were then. A second myth is that this spending is not being driven by entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare, because again, it clearly is. And the chart here to look at from the CBO is this graph of mandatory spending versus discretionary spending. And mandatory back in the the 70s, early 80s was under or about 10% of GDP. And that includes these social programs. And now we're on a trend line where it is going to go up to 15% of the economy. And discretionary, on the other hand, is what you think of in terms of congressional appropriations, which also includes defense spending and the Pentagon. Back in the 70s and 80s, it was about 10% of GDP. And now we are on a trend line where it is going to be about half that 
the CBO projects 5.1% in 2034. And Kim, I think that's also explanatory because it helps people figure out why Congress is at each other's throats in these kinds of spending fights over every dollar of discretionary and defense spending. Part of the solution here, part of what answers the question is because these mandatory figures are going up so much that they are crowding out all other parts of the federal budget. I mean, this is just basic math. And there's a way to put it into a context that the average household understands because they have to do it every day with their own budgeting. You know, you sit down and look, those two numbers that you said, if your revenue coming in is about 18% of GDP, and you're spending at a level of 23% of GDP, there's your mismatch right there. More money is going out the door than is coming in. And then you imagine a pie chart and you look at where all your spending is going. And as you note, an increasingly small wedge of it is going to discretionary programs, which by the way, are the things that Congress loves to spend on. That's where all the fun is because they get to decide where it goes and their different priorities. That is becoming a smaller and smaller piece because mandatory is just ballooning as the size of the pie on autopilot, by the way, because as you note, no one will do anything to try to reform those programs. I would also note that one of the reasons that we're in as dire a situation as we are right now, and these numbers look so bad, it says something about how quickly Congress can make a mess. An enormous part of how ugly these numbers are were simply the years in which we were dealing with covid Prior to COVID, the last fiscal year budget we had, we spent $4.4 trillion on the federal government. In fiscal 2020, we spent 6.6. And in fiscal 2021, we spent 6.8. That's an additional $5 trillion. And it brings up another piece of this CBO report that I think is really important, which is the level of our debt at the moment and the increasing amount of the pie that's also being taken up by the interest payments to service that debt. So this fiscal year alone, we're going to spend $870 billion servicing that debt. That is more, just to put this in perspective, than we are spending on defense this year. And by 2034, according to that CBO report, that number is going to approximately double to $1.6 trillion of fiscal year. That's 3.9% of GDP. And, you know, a lot of this is because we are already looking at, you know, existing debt uh, of 20 some trillion dollars, a lot of which got piled on just in recent years. And yet we have a Congress that has shown no willingness to try to pull back some of those levels. It just as an interesting side note, when I wrote my book this last year, I went and looked back as bad as those numbers are. I went back and looked at what the Biden administration had proposed spending in just its first two years of office. Thank God a lot of it was not enacted, but they proposed $22 trillion worth of spending in just two years. And that tells you a little bit about Congress's appetite to keep going rather than rein it back. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more on this in a moment. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihadprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Welcome back. Alicia, you used the word unsustainable to describe the situation a moment ago. And I agree with that, but that's part of what makes the 
political response to this or lack thereof so odd to me because it is clear that these programs are heading for a crash and in not too distant of a future. So if you go back and look at the the most recent trustees report for the Social Security program, it says that the old age and survivors insurance trust fund will be able to pay 100% of total scheduled benefits until 2033. At that time, the fund's reserves will become depleted and continuing program income will be sufficient to pay 77% of scheduled benefits. And so what that translates to is in 2033, we're staring down the barrel of a 23% automatic cut in Social Security payments going out to seniors. And 2033 is is not that far away. If you think about the next president, if the next president were to win and we have potentially two incumbents running. But if you had a two term president, that would be the end of their second term. They would leave office in 2033 after the 2024 election. And so, Alicia, it is a bit boggling to me that neither party is willing to take up this issue and say, we can't delay this anymore. We have to change Social Security in order to fix and save Social Security. Otherwise, we're talking about a a cut of almost a quarter coming here uh, within a decade. So a couple points here. One is that I think Congress I mean, is continually kick this can down the road. One, because they don't want to get beat up in, in political campaigns for even proposing or suggesting anything that could be interpreted as, quote unquote, cutting Social Security or Medicare. You recall how uh, much flack Paul Ryan got in 2012 when he was Mitt Romney's running mate because he had proposed uh, this premium uh, assistant model for reforming Medicare to put on a more sustainable track. And there were actually ads run basically that showed Paul Ryan pushing uh, an elderly woman off a cliff. But Trump also used it uh, to try to beat up Nikki Haley, who had proposed extending the retirement age gradually for young people. And this was deemed that she was trying to slash entitlements. And Ron Santis also went after her for that. So members of both political parties are very leery of even touching this third rail because they don't want to get knocked up over it in either a primary or a general election. What I think will probably end up happening is, I think I mentioned earlier, you'll probably get some deal to raise taxes, especially for the Social Security. Um, maybe they uh, eliminate the current wage cap, um, and which would end up being a huge tax increase, marginal tax increase for higher earners. And then maybe some modest uh, adjustments to benefits, like uh, an increase in the retirement age for those who are currently young. And you have to remember also that these trust funds are, are to some extent political you know, artifacts. What Congress could technically do is just rewrite the law and say, no, the benefits aren't going to be cut. We're just going to backfill this with general fund revenue. And I could see that happening as well. Kim, what about this idea that you sometimes hear of a fiscal commission that could get together and propose some changes to these programs or broader federal budgeting as a way to give each of the political parties a little bit of cover. And notable that the House Budget Committee is advancing a bill to create a fiscal commission. It went through the committee last month, 22 to 12, and three Democrats voted yes. 
<laughs> you know, I'm really old. If I had a nickel for every time Congress was going to make a fiscal commission, I wouldn't be doing this job. I'd be sitting on a beach somewhere drinking a margarita. But yes, we have another idea for a commission. This was an idea that got rolling during the debate last year when we were putting together the debt ceiling bill. Now had the committee advance it, 22 to 12, three Democrats joining Republicans. Many Democrats did not want to take part in this, did not want to vote for it because they believe that any commission is simply going to suggest cuts. And of course, any commission should be suggesting cuts, but they see this as a political opportunity to somehow equate a vote for a commission as going along the same routes Alicia was just describing as a way to attack Republicans preemptively to suggest that they want to get rid of granny and throw her off the cliff by cutting social security or medicare the problem with these commissions is in theory they're a great idea and yes do we want to have some mechanism that requires congress to think hard about cuts yes except for that very rarely do the recommendations or the reports that come out of these commission actually result in any action and the other thing that's very frustrating about this is that often these commissions, kind of like when we've had balanced budget debates in Congress, there is a preference in the end because when really faced with cuts or reform, no one has much courage. The easy thing to do, as Alicia said, is to lean heavily on raising revenues, even though that can have a deadly cost to the economy and shy away from some of the big dramatic things that you would need to do to make a real difference. The pity of that is, is that you would think that a commission, a report would be the place where members of Congress could feel most emboldened to make some broad recommendations, some big sweeping changes because it's not binding, they're not voting on it, but it's remarkable how people are nervous about even attaching their names to such a project. But the difficulty is that the sooner you make these kinds of changes, Alicia, the less painful they can be. And the conversation here suggests that maybe the political system is just not ready for that, not willing to take it up at this point. And what that essentially means is that the Congress is not going to deal with this problem until it becomes a crisis. There is no averting the crisis. We're just going to have to wait until we get there. And uh, Alicia, we'll give you the last word on this topic, but that means that the cuts and the tax increases and so forth, whatever the final deal is to avert this problem and to save these programs, it's going to be more painful than it would be if we did it now or if we had done it 10 years ago. Right. And I think we actually haven't considered at least one other option, I think, for Medicare. And you're already seeing this. And the Biden administration has proposed or has pushed through cuts to both to Medicare Advantage plans and now physician fees. Actually, in 2015, the, the cuts to the physician fees were mandated by Congress in order to achieve budget neutrality. But the result of that is that you're going to get actually seniors are going to have less access to care. And that's already happening. And now the Medicare Advantage plans, which are kind of private insurance plans that now cover about half of Medicare beneficiaries, they're talking about cutting back benefits and they're going to further restrict their networks of providers. And what else the Biden administration has been doing is, by the way, they have restricted access to Alzheimer's drugs because they are, quote unquote, too expensive. And so you're going to see a lot more rationed care, at least in the Medicare program, in order to try to reduce costs because they don't want to actually grapple with reforming this program. Hang tight. We'll be right back after one more break. 
WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the Opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. Meantime, in Washington, House Republicans have finally succeeded in impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. This is the first impeachment of a cabinet secretary in about 150 years. The vote was 214 to 213, with all Democrats voting no and three Republicans also voting no. Let's start with a clip of Congressman Mark Green now saying that the Senate has a job to do. Secretary Mayorkas has shown throughout his tenure that he will defy, he will ignore, and he will replace the laws enacted by this Congress. His actions have not only shown a disdain for the Constitution, but for the Congress, the law, and the American people. The constitutional case against Secretary Mayorkas is sound. It's now time for the Senate to do its duty, to step up, hold a trial, and convict Secretary Mayorkas. Kim, what do you make of this move to impeach Mayorkas, particularly given that I don't think anybody, including Congressman Green, really believes that Chuck Schumer's Senate is going to convict him and remove him from office? Yeah, I mean, look, we went through in prior episodes of this some of the issues with the legal argument. You're now referring to the political question here. Notably, remember, this vote actually failed last week uh, when Democrats essentially pulled one of their members out of a hospital, showed them, rolled him out on the floor so that he could make up one additional vote. And it caught Republicans off guard and they didn't have enough votes to succeed. This time, they actually hauled back Steve Scalise, who is in the leadership and who was undergoing cancer treatment so that he would be present so that they could eke this over the finish line. I appreciate that right now, when you have a Republican Congress that has done so little over the past year, I mean, other than that debt ceiling agreement, they have not done really anything of great consequence. We've ended up having a lot of continuing resolutions to put off government shutdowns. They still haven't finished any of those appropriations bills that need to finish out this fiscal year. They are struggling right now to get a FISA reform bill over the finish line. They have exactly five more legislative days until we hit the next deadline for a government shutdown. So this is something they felt that they could largely agree on, vote for, and look as though they're getting tough on the border. As we noted, as you just noted, it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to be successful in the Senate. I suppose they can flag it out there for their voters and say, see, we're tough on the border. I have to imagine that at least some voters, though, are wondering, where's the beef? Meaning, why don't you actually get serious about some of the legislation that's hanging around in which there's an opportunity to do something substantive legislatively at the border? That is something they cannot wrap their heads around and agree on. But if that's what independent and swing voters are thinking, there may be a sign of it in this race in New York on Long Island to replace George Santos, who was expelled from Congress. 
And we talked about this on the podcast yesterday. Polls had suggested it was going to be a close fight between former Congressman Tom Suozzi and Republican challenger Maisie Pillip. And what happened is uh, we now have the results in from Tuesday's voting, and it's more like an eight-point victory for Suozzi. And the connection here, I think, is notable, Alicia, because Tom Suozzi came out in favor of that Senate border bill that was negotiated by Republican Senator James Lankford. He said that it was uh, the best opportunity to secure the border in 40 years. And remember that Lankford deal included some provisions tightening the standard for claiming asylum in the United States. It included some provisions for emergency closures of the border. And I do wonder whether Republicans are giving a political opening to the other side. They're going through this impeachment of Mayorkas, which is not going to change any of the facts on the ground at the border. And meantime, they're not taking up any sort of legislation like the Langford bill or uh, making amendments to it if they think they can make improvements to it and giving an opportunity to Democrats in some of these swing seats, in some of these swing Senate races that we're going to be seeing in Montana and Ohio to say, look, I support something like the Langford deal. And it's not me who's standing in the way. It's it's Republicans who don't want to solve the problem because they don't think President Trump wants the problem solved until November. Donald Trump came out against this bill and that put the kibosh on it because nobody wanted to get on the wrong side of Donald Trump or no Republicans, James Lakeford aside. And this bill, um, as Tom Swayze said, it was probably the most conservative border immigration legislation that's passed before in more than 40 years. Um, I think our editorial said, you know, 100 years going back to the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, it, it had some real teeth to it. But Republicans, uh, many Republicans figured, well, we'll just run on the issue of the border chaos. They didn't want to hand Biden a victory on this because they were worried that that might actually in, in some ways neutralize the issue uh, in November and at least if you look at some of the polls, immigration and the border mess is ranking now even higher than the economy in terms of what voters view as the most important issue right now. But the Republicans may have miscalculated it, as you said, in a lot of these swing districts. Um, again, they're not hardline Republican districts. The swing districts actually want Congress to actually do something about this. And they're not just watching what, you know, some of these Fox News pundits and other you know right wing voices out there who are trashing the bill. Swing voters are actually ticked off that nothing happens. And so there is actual real political risk in killing this bill. Thank you, Alicia and Kim. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button and we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch.